Good morning. This week, as we continue in our study of the book of Joshua, we'll look at Joshua chapter 9 through 12. There's a lot happening here, and obviously we can't cover all four chapters in detail. And so my hope is to really dig into chapter 9 and then to give you a synopsis of what's happening in chapters 10 through 12 to understand better how this fits into the larger story of the book of Joshua and the story of God redeeming his people in scripture. So in Joshua 9, we'll begin in a little bit of context. In Joshua 8, we have seen Joshua and the Israelites through the Lord's hand defeat the people of Ai. And we hear in Joshua 9 about how other nations will respond to this victory. I'll begin and I'll read verses 1 through 2, and today I'm reading from the English Standard Version. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So we'll remember that Joshua and the Israelites are on this conquest to come into Canaan and to take the land of Canaan. And in Canaan, we have all of these city-states, places like Jericho. And these people have heard about Joshua and the Israelites defeating AI. And because of that, they are fearful and they choose to rise up into battle against Joshua and Israel. All nations except for one, the nation of Gibeon. And we're about to learn more about them if you'll look at verses three through five with me. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. So interestingly enough, although all of these nations choose to rise up against Israel, the Gibeonites decide to act with cunning and to try to spare their lives by pretending that they are foreigners from a distant land. Now, one of the reasons that they are doing this is you'll remember God's people were commanded back in Deuteronomy, that when they went into the land to take the land, they were called to conquer everything. They weren't to make any covenants or any alliances with the foreign nations living there. And so the Gibeonites, to try to spare their lives, are going to pretend like they are not from a place close to Canaan, but that they're from far away. Let's see what happens in verses 6 through 13. And they went out to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. 
for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Astartoth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So these Gibeonites have dressed up in old clothes, put old sandals on their feet, and taken bread that is dry and crumbly, and come to the Israelites to try to make a covenant with them to convince them that they are strangers and foreigners who journeyed from a long way away. And immediately you can see that the Israelites and Joshua are a little bit suspicious. They ask, we can't make a covenant with you. What if you are perhaps one of our neighbors who live close to us? And this again is referencing back in Deuteronomy. As the people are preparing to enter the land, you'll remember Deuteronomy. It's like a, a sermon to God's people in preparation to enter the promised land. God reminds them of the ways that he's been at work in their hearts. He reminds them of the covenant and their call to obedience and all that they should remember as they go into the land. And one thing that he tells them is that they are to make no covenants with the people who enter the land. And this might seem really harsh, uh, this going into the land and, and taking over and battling every nation you encounter. But the purpose behind this command is that the Lord knew that if his people came into the land and if the people of God made covenants with the foreign nations and if their children intermarried with the foreign nations, that what would happen is that the people of God would be tempted to worship the false gods and goddesses of these nations, that their hearts would be drawn away from the Lord. And so the Lord warns them and says, do not make a covenant with the foreign nations. But the Gibeonites are deceptive and they want to trick Joshua and the Israelites. And so I can almost imagine them saying, Look at this bread. It was warm when we left and now it's old and crumbly. Look at our sandals. They're worn out from walking so many miles. And so let's turn to verses 14 and 15 and see if Joshua and the Israelites will believe them or if they will catch on to the trickery. Verse 14. So the men, the Israelites, took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of their congregation swore to them. So we see here that Joshua and the leaders of Israel are deceived and they make a covenant with the people of Gibeon, with the Gibeonites. Two issues at play here. First, they were never supposed to make covenants with foreign nations. And here they have done that. But I think that there's also something else going on here, and the text provides commentary about it. You notice how 
there's not a lot of commentary about what the Gibeonites did. So we're, we're told that they acted with cunning and they were deceptive, but there's not a lot of commentary on whether or not they should have done that. Now we know that it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to deceive people. But the moral commentary in this text really comes in verse 14, that the men took provisions, they took some of the provisions the Gibeonites brought, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I just am reminded here of how easy it is to assume that we have things under control and that we can use our own reasoning skills that we have been given to make a good decision and to move forward and how quick sometimes I am to rely on my own instincts rather than to turn to the Lord and to consult Him and His Word for what I ought to do in certain situations. It seemed like a straightforward thing in some ways. These people said they journeyed from far away. They say that they fear the Lord. They want to make a covenant with us. Why would we not agree? But the Israelites fail to consult the Lord, the text tells us. And how often is that also true of my own life? Um, in seasons of doubt and in seasons of struggle and in seasons where I am not sure what to do next, it is easy for me to turn to God because I am just really aware of my need for Him. But sometimes when I feel like I have everything together and things are going my way and I'm feeling pretty self-sufficient, I can fool myself into thinking that I have the power to make good decisions and that maybe I act as if I don't even need the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that every decision you make every day needs to be brought to the Lord in prayer, or that you have to pray asking the Lord if you should have lunch at Zoe's today or at Urban Cookhouse. But I think that so often our instincts are to rely on ourselves rather than to turn to the Lord and to ask of Him what He would have for us. James would tell us in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 2, that we don't have sometimes because we don't ask. We fail to ask the Lord's guidance and direction. And this is a problem, is a besetting sin that we're going to see over and over again for the people of Israel, that they will get into situations where they will be trusting in kings that seem to be good. They'll be having economic times that are prosperous. Things will seem to be going well, and they will make decisions without consulting the Lord, and that that is going to be their downfall at the end of the day. And so as I read this, it was just a warning to my own heart of how I need to seek the Lord in all things and all in all seasons. But we're going to see here at the end of chapter 9 how God is going to work out all things for good, even the Israelites' mistake here. So I'll read, I'll, I'll read beginning in verse 16 through 27. At the end of the three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. So they heard that the Gibeonites had in fact deceived them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherbah, Beeroth, and Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. I want to stop here and make commentary first. So the people of Israel are very upset when they discover what has happened. They want their leaders to attack the Gibeonites because they've been deceived. But the leaders of Israel say, no, we can't do that because we have made a covenant with them. We have sworn to them and now we may not touch them. Don't let wrath be upon us because we choose to break our word. We're going to keep our promise. And I just was reminded here of the importance of us as believers being people who keep our word. Um, Even when we make foolish decisions, choosing to follow through and to keep our word, uh, the psalmist would say that integrity is when we are people who keep our word even when it hurts. So even though it may not have been in the best interest for the Israelites to keep this covenant, they wanted to be people of integrity who were faithful to let their yes be yes and their no be no. Let's continue on in verse 21. And the leaders said to them, let they live, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servants Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So we see that the Gibeonites, in exchange for their deceptiveness, are given these really menial tasks that would have perhaps seemed burdensome and would have been laborious for ancient society. They are made cutters of wood and drawers for water, but this is for a specific purpose. So you'll remember that the Israelite system of worship was all based on sacrifices. And so these are the people who would cut the wood for the sacrifices and who would draw the water for the sacrifices. And you can see how God has taken a decision that the Israelites made that wasn't the best decision and has used it for good because now these Gentiles will be at the center of worship for Israel, seeing the sacrifices made, seeing the testimony of God's promise to forgive sin, seeing God's mercy, seeing his provision. And so here again, like in Joshua 2, where we see a Gentile, Rahab, profess belief in the one true God, we see this again in Joshua 9, that God is calling people to himself. 
not only those who are ethnic Israel, but those who are outside of Israel are called to come in, called to be a part of the covenant community because of his graciousness and his mercy. I wish that we could spend time reading Joshua 10, 11, and 12. We don't have time for that this morning, but I would encourage you in your time this week to take a few moments to read these chapters. And I just want to give you a 20,000 foot view of how they fit into the larger story of Joshua. So in Joshua 10, we're going to see five Canaanite kings rise up against Joshua and the people of Israel because of their covenant they made with the Gibeonites. And Joshua is going to battle with them along with the people of Israel. But the main thing that we see over and over in Joshua 10 is that the people were victorious because God fought for them. There are these amazing stories in Joshua 10 of God's intervention, that God draws the people, the Canaanites, into confusion at battle. God slings large hailstones from heaven, and more are harmed and stopped by the hailstones than are stopped by the swords of the Israelites, and that God is even going to stop time to allow Joshua and the Israelites to be victorious. So God is going to give them the victory because he is fighting for them. And this is why they are able to be superior and to overcome these foes in Joshua 10. In Joshua 11, we see more kings coming up against Joshua and Israel, and they're all defeated because again, God is going to give them over to Israel. And we see this theme of conquering in Joshua 11, but we also see this theme of obedience to God's word. So in Joshua 11, we hear several times that Joshua obeys all that Moses had commanded him and all that God had commanded Moses. Just as the Lord commanded Moses and Moses Joshua, so Joshua did, it says in verse 15. And one specific instance of this that I found really interesting is that the Lord commands them that when they defeat this one certain army or group of people, they are called to burn the chariots and to hamstring the horses of their enemies. Now, if you think about it, the chariots and the horses could have been a real advancement for the people of Israel. They could have been really helpful on this campaign to take the promised land right? But they don't take him. Instead, they follow God's command. They burn the chariots and they hamstring the horses. And I think the Lord commanded them to do this because he wanted them to remember that their strength was not in their military possessions. It wasn't in the chariots they could acquire or the horses they could possess, that their strength was in God and God alone. And we hear this refrain even in the Psalms as the psalmist looks back on the story of Israel, that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And finally, in Joshua 12, we have one of those lists of kings and lists of lands that Israel has defeated up to this point. And to be honest, if you are like me, sometimes you might come upon lists of peoples or kings or genealogies in the Bible and think, I wonder why this is in here. 
Now we know that all of Scripture is God-breathed and all it's useful. It's inspired and it corrects us and it rebukes us and it trains us in righteousness. But sometimes if you're like me, you get to a list like this and you're a little bit puzzled about its significance. But as I was thinking about this list, I thought that even though this list to me is a list of things that are really hard to pronounce, if I can be honest, for an Israelite who is reading this list of kingdoms and kings, he or she would have been reminded of God being faithful to his promises. You see, the book of Joshua is all about God fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to go from his home, and he promised Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. He was going to give him a great people, and he was going to make his name great, and that through Abraham's descendants, the world would be blessed. And this is a storyline that we have been following throughout all of Scripture, right? God calls Abraham, Abraham goes, Abraham and Sarah are given Isaac, their heir, Isaac has children, and so on, and so on, and so on. And we see Abraham's descendants grow into a mighty nation, the nation of Israel. They're under captivity in Egypt, and God uses Moses to deliver them from Egypt. God brings them into the wilderness, and now they are on the brink of conquering the promised land, this land that he had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And so I think for an Israelite reading this list of names, this Israelite, he or she would have been encouraged and reminded of how God keeps his promises. And I think about the own list, my own list of things like that in my life, uh, places and people that may not be significant to you. But for me, I think about the Helen Heltons and the Mary Van Dykes at Walls Baptist Church that taught me in fifth grade Sunday school. And I think about East Rutherford High School, and I think about the Baptist Campus Ministry in Jane Poster at the University of South Carolina. And I can look back and I can see how God was faithful and how God provided and how God was present with me in times that were good and in times that were difficult. And I want to encourage you today as we finish to think back on your own life and to ask yourself, what are the places or the people or the events that are reminders to me of God's faithfulness to me? Because you see, I think that as we are walking in faithfulness today, we need to be reminded of how God was faithful before so that we can walk in encouragement knowing that He will provide today and that He will provide tomorrow, that He promises that He will never leave and will never forsake us, and that He goes with us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for Your Word in Joshua. What a convicting word for me today. Lord, would You help me never to trust in my own self-sufficiency or my own reasoning, but to always seek You? Would You help me to be a person who keeps their word, even when it hurts, Lord, that I would be faithful to let my yes be yes and my no be no? Lord, would You help us to see that we are powerless on our own, that You are the one who fights for us and that we can trust in you and you alone. 
God, and as I look back on my own story, would you remind me continually of the ways that you have shown me your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness? And most clearly, I see that in the person of Jesus. We thank you for the ways that we have been shown mercy and forgiveness that we did not deserve. Lord, would you empower us to walk faithfully this week in whatever you have called us for the glory of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen.